I'd like to talk this morning about humility, which is something I struggle with, not something I struggle with as often as I need to. Um, I think it's something that we probably all struggle with. Uh, The word humble means of a low station, lowly, beneath. Um, Humility is something that I think is a theme of the New Testament. It's also a theme of of a lot of the the Old Testament. Last week, Brother Stephen talked about the book of Ecclesiastes, and I think that one of the main themes of that book is humility. Um, there were the book of Ecclesiastes is um, uh, told by the preacher, who a son of David, could be Solomon, um, but a man of great stature, somebody who's at the top of the world, has uh, great riches has done great works, uh, somebody who might be seen as um, having a lot to be proud of. Um, But if you look, if we just go to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 2, you have this great king who has done so many amazing works, who has sought out knowledge and wisdom who has achieved knowledge and wisdom. And starting at verse 11 of chapter 2, he says, Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought, and on the labor that I had labored to do, and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. And I turned myself to behold wisdom and madness and folly, For what can the man do that cometh after the king, even that which hath already been done? Then I saw that wisdom excelleth folly as far as light excelleth darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walketh in darkness. And I myself perceived also that one event happeneth to them all. Then I said in my heart, as it happeneth to the fool, so it happeneth even to me. And why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart that this also is vanity. And so the king, the preacher, is here reflecting on his great works and his great knowledge and realizing that although he might have a lot to be proud of in the world, it's really not anything very important in the big scheme of things. And I think that that takes humility. That is a king humbling himself. All of his greatness was worthless in the big scheme of things. Um, But then if you move on in the book of Ecclesiastes, you can... He talks more about the, how there is nothing new under the sun, how uh, uh, all is vanity. But at the end, the conclusion is to fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. 
And this is one thing about humility that I think is important. It's about uh, arranging ourselves in a relationship with God. Arranging ourselves in relationship to God. That all of our great works and our great wisdom is so small in comparison. And it's impossible for us to... uh, to put ourselves in a proper relationship with God if we're proud, if we are thinking about our greatness and our great works. Um, And it's the the theme of humility is certainly a theme of the New Testament as well, and we can see it in a lot of different places. One of the places, um, there's a story about that, that Jesus tells. It's not a story that Jesus tells. It's an event that, uh, that Jesus is a part of where he calls a little child unto him. And we can read about that in Matthew, uh, Mark, and Luke. Just starting with Matthew chapter 18, beginning of the chapter. And we have the 12 disciples, the, the apostles of Jesus, who have been accompanying Jesus, uh, hearing him, working for him. And the conversation that they're having is, which one of us is the greatest? Which is a, seems to me, in, in reading about uh, what Jesus teaches, this is a strange conversation for the disciples to be having. Because it doesn't seem to me like something that, um, that they should really be talking about. Who's going to be the greatest in heaven? That seems the opposite of Jesus' teachings. To be worried about who is going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So that's a strange way for it to start. Um, and just, just moving on, so I'll read the the story as it's told in Matthew and then uh, also in Mark and Luke, just because that gives some, some greater context. So, at the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them and said, Verily I say unto you, Except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receiveth me. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. So that's the book of Matthew. You turn to the book of Mark, chapter 9. We can read the same story. At verse 33. And he, Jesus, came to Capernaum. And being in the house, he asked them, the disciples, What was it that ye disputed among yourselves by the way? And here we can see that the disciples maybe realize that that's not something they should have been arguing about. 
But they held their peace, for by the way, they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. Doesn't, they're not something they want to tell Jesus about, but they do. And he sat down and called the twelve and saith unto them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said unto them, Whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name receiveth me. And whosoever shall receive me receiveth not me, but him that sent me. And then finally, you turn to Luke chapter 9, uh, verse 46. Once again, the same story. Then there arose a reasoning among them, which of them should be greatest. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a child and set him by him and said unto them, Whosoever shall receive this child in my name receiveth me. And whosoever shall receive me receiveth him that sent me. For he that is least among you all, the same shall be great. But the the version in the book of Matthew is the most detailed. And so I'm going to to read through that. I think that there are different details in each book. uh, And and that is uh, very helpful for context and for understanding. But in the book of Matthew, after the disciples wonder who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, we read that Jesus called a little child unto him. And so it's not just a child, it's a little child. It's specific that it's a little child. And a child, then and now, is somebody who is, um, although the subject of much love and caring, uh, a child is lowly. A child doesn't have, um, doesn't have the freedoms that an adult has. A child doesn't have the knowledge that an adult has. A child doesn't have the worldliness that an adult has. Uh, Children are subject to their parents. Children are subject to uh, grown-ups of all kinds, subject to teachers, subject to all of the authorities. Grown-ups are subject to authorities. Children are subject to all of the authorities. Children don't have means They don't have the way to take care of themselves. They don't have money. They don't have uh, the responsibilities. But they also don't have the privileges of adulthood. And a little child in particular is subject to the larger children. Subject to the older children. A little child is the lowliest of all. And they're not always good. Um... But they are lowly. And Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted. So the word converted means changed. And he's talking to his disciples. 
And so he's saying that they have to be changed. Except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. So he's not saying that only children will get into the kingdom of heaven or that... um, that anything particular about children as an age group, I don't think. He's saying that the disciples have to become like little children. They have to become humble. As he says in the next verse, whosoever therefore shall humble himself. So the focus here is on humility. And again, a small child is subject to all of the authorities. And so the the conversation that the disciples were having about who would be greatest is in a way the opposite of the conversation that would make them the greatest. Concerning themselves with being the greatest is the opposite of humility. Trying to be the greatest is the opposite of being or trying to be a little child. Humility isn't something that can be done in order to be righteous. Because if it's being, if it is a, if it is taken on in order to, um, to be great, well, then that's the opposite of humility. That's, that's self-defeating. You can't undertake humility in order to be great. Uh, and so that's a, difficult, that's a difficult thing. And it's a, it's a paradox. And Jesus puts it as a paradox. Whoever shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So the lowest is the highest, and the highest is the lowest. And it's also interesting to to read on about how we should treat those who are as little children. And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receiveth me. And again, uh, one such little child, here Jesus is talking about those who are as little children, those who have humbled themselves as little children, who have subjected themselves, put themselves in a relationship as lower than. Whoso shall receive one such little child someone who has humbled themselves as a little child, in my name receiveth me. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. And that is a uh, stark fate. That is uh, uh, to have a millstone hanged about the neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea is fairly straightforward. That's not a good place to be. Um, and, and what 
condemns one to that fate is to offend one of these little ones which believe in me. One of those who is as a little child. And to offend, uh, as it's it's used here, the Greek word um, is from uh, scandalon. Uh, It is a... It's, it's, uh, it was originally meant the bait stick in a trap. So you have a trap that's designed to catch animals. You have a stick in it that holds the bait. And when the animal takes the bait, it pulls the stick or moves the stick, and then the trap is sprung. Either the, the, the rock falls down on the animal or the, the uh, door to the box closes. So the the bait stick uh, is where this word offend comes from. And it means something that's going to trap you or a stumbling block. Uh, And Jesus dealt with a lot of stumbling blocks in his ministry. Uh, And he dealt with a lot of people who were not humble. (laughs) And... Um, We can read further on in Matthew, if you move to uh, chapter 22, where there are two groups of people who join forces against Jesus to trap him. And that's the, uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And if we look at verses 15 to 46, it's it's a long passage. But here we can read about one of the verbal traps One of the verbal offenses, or not once, but several of the verbal uh, traps that were set for Jesus. Then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him, Jesus, in his talk. And they sent out unto him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Master, we know that thou art true, and teachest the way of God in truth. Neither carest thou for any man, for thou regardest not the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness, and said, Why tempt ye me, ye hypocrites? Show me the tribute money. And they brought unto him a penny. And he saith unto them, Whose is this image and superscription? They say unto him, Caesar's. Then he saith, then saith he unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar all the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. When they had heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. So the Pharisees had attempted to catch Jesus in a verbal trap, but he was able to escape it. But that's not the end. The same day came to him the Sadducees, which say that there is no resurrection, and asked him, saying, Master, Moses said, If a man die, having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. Now there were with us seven brethren, and the first, when he had married a wife, deceased, and having no issue, left his wife unto his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third unto the seventh. And last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be of the seven? For they had all had her. 
Jesus answered and said unto them, Ye do err, not knowing the Scriptures, nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry, nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. But as touching the resurrection of the dead, have ye not read that which was spoken unto you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitude heard this, they were astonished at his doctrine. So a second time, Jesus has encountered an attempted verbal trap. The Pharisees started out trying to trap Jesus into uh, saying something either against the, uh, the law or against Caesar. Now the Sadducees have done the same thing, but they're not finished with the verbal traps. In verse 34, we learn that they team up. When the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. They joined forces um, to try to trap Jesus. Then one of them, which was a lawyer, watch out, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? They say unto him, The son of David. He saith unto them, How then doth David in spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then call him Lord, how is he his son? And no man was able to answer him a word, neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. So Jesus was able to extricate himself from these verbal traps. He did it three times. He did it to the Pharisees, to the Sadducees, and then when they teamed up and joined forces, um, he was able to, to do it again. This is something that uh, was a uh, uh, not, not a challenge for Jesus, but it's something that he faced, and it's something that he warned against, um, warned his disciples against doing, against being the same as the Pharisees and the Sadducees, uh, who were not humble. They took their uh, self-righteousness, their knowledge of the law, and used it to try to trap Jesus instead of to use it to a positive end. And so I think that um, that's a very important lesson. It's an important uh, thing to think about and to to, uh, at least for me, to try to arrange myself uh, with respect to other people and respect to God in a humble way, not thinking that, uh, that I know or that I uh, am, am above anybody else or that uh, I can 
take control of things myself. To think that uh, one is in control of uh, my ultimate destiny or the destiny of anybody else, I think, is, um, is not humble. And in that way, I think that humility not only carries uh, a connotation of placing yourself lower in relationship to other people and certainly to God, but also in terms of giving yourself a break. We aren't in control of everything. We don't have the means or the capacity to fix the world. And that's not our responsibility. Um, and it takes a certain humility to recognize that. Because I think that as people, we see the world as a place that we can manipulate. And we can manipulate a lot of things in the world. And we can create great things in the world and things that we uh, admire and um, sometimes worship. But that's all an illusion when it comes to the greater uh, uh, to, to, to God uh, and to, to the greater uh, questions that we don't have the capacity to control things. And so it's important to be humble, not simply for our relationship with other people, but for ourselves and for our own understanding and our own uh, capacity to to be one with God. And if you look at the life of Jesus Christ, this is a life of humility. If you look how the story of Jesus begins, it's the most humble beginning that you could conceive of. Even before he's born, Joseph is concerned that he, that, that, uh, that Mary will be a, public spectacle because of the circumstances of Jesus' conception. Then when Jesus is born, he's born in a barn. And if you, you know, growing up and, and uh, celebrating Christmas, there's a certain romanticism that is, uh, uh, that we see with the baby Jesus in the manger, and that's wonderful, and it's, it, you know, Beautiful to think about if you've ever been inside of a barn, it's not as romantic. And I think that the reality of Jesus being born in a barn in an animal feeding trough is not meant to be romantic. I don't think that's the point. I think the point is it is the ultimate humble situation to be born and to be put into a trough. Away from home, his parents couldn't even get anybody to let them in. And there are many other examples of Jesus' humility through his life, being the Son of God. He nevertheless uh, walked as a man and was treated as a man and was persecuted. And then at the end of his life, 
like, his, like the beginning, he suffered the ultimate humiliation to be scourged and uh, insulted and beaten and then hung on a cross, which was at that time in particular the ultimate humiliation. It was, uh, it was a very bad thing to be hung on a tree. It was believed that that was, uh, was the ultimate humiliation. And so Jesus' life exhibits humility. Um, the, the ultimate humility. And I think that that's something that, that, uh, that's important to, to take note of. Um, and again, I think that, that humility, again, is not simply treating yourself as lowly in respect of other people. It is also treating yourself... Um, giving yourself a break, allowing yourself to recognize that you aren't in control, that instead God is in control. And in fact, Jesus says as much. Uh, we're in the book of Matthew, if you move to Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30, Jesus says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So Jesus' yoke is not uh, to, uh, uh, to give us the responsibility to take control of things is not the responsibility to fix the world. It is to be meek and lowly in heart to find rest. And that is, I think, the opposite of what the Pharisees and the Sadducees were talking uh, to him about. They wanted to... Uh, they wanted to be self-righteous, to build themselves up at the detriment of Jesus. And so, I don't want to be like them. I don't think that any of us do. And I'd like to just uh, close with um, some of the words from the Apostle Paul about humility. From the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 3 to 11. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in a fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. 
Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that's that passage that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's not because Jesus acted like a king. It's not because he made himself of a great reputation or showed that he was greater than everybody else in worldly terms. It was because he made of himself no reputation, that he humbled himself and was obedient unto death. That's the way that Jesus humbled himself and... um, That provides a lot of food for thought. Thank you very much for your time and your attention. I appreciate what Brother Ben has brought forth, and I'm going to continue along the thoughts that he had out of Matthew 18 and just uh, share a a few thoughts that I hope might be a blessing. I appreciate his uh, approach on humility, and we've had some really good examples of folks that have lived a life of humility. Elder Compton was uh, such a, a, a humble man and a blessing to others, and, and through his humility, God opened a lot of big doors through the humility that Elder Compton faced, and I'll share a story with you here in just a minute. I'm going to continue on down. In the same chapter, and this was not my thoughts, but I I hope the Lord will bless it for just a few minutes. How do you resolve conflict? How do you handle conflict? Now, the scriptures tell us right here how to do it. Uh, I think it specifically relates to in the church, specifically. Uh, It also works uh, in other areas of our life as well if we take the principles that are taught in God's Word relating to the church and church members. I had a, a, a minister that said one time that uh, he had pastored a church 26 years, and he said we never had a, uh, a split within the church. We never had uh, dissension within the church. And he said the reason that we didn't, he said every six months I preached on Matthew 18. And he said that reminded the folks to be humble, and it also told the very simple specific steps to handle and address conflict. Uh, Continuing on down with what Brother Ben has brought forth, it says, and this is Christ bringing the message right here, How think ye if a man have a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, doth he not leave the ninety-nine and go and seeketh that into the mountains and seeketh that one which is gone astray? And if so be that he find it, Verily I say unto you, he rejoiceth more of that sheep than the ninety-nine which went not astray. And then it says, and this is in the other Gospels as well, Even so is it not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So the purpose in resolving conflict and addressing conflict is to keep one of these little ones from perishing. The purpose is to save the individual or individuals. That's the purpose 
and the gold. There's another place, I think it may be in Luke's account of this same story, where it says that when there's one of the little ones that is uh, the the one sheep that is spared, that it even says that there's rejoicing in heaven when that takes place. So that's pretty amazing that in heaven that the angels are rejoicing when there's one that is spared. Well, we'll look at this uh, three-part account of how that Christ himself says that we handle conflict. He says, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee. You know, as we live here in this life, that's just going to happen. It's going to happen. We're going to offend somebody or they're going to offend us. Uh, Sometimes we say the wrong thing. Sometimes we don't say it the right way. Sometimes we think the wrong thought and offenses are going to come. We can put forth a lot of effort to keep that from happening, but we're human and we have the depraved nature and we are likely to offend at some point or another. He says there's three points right here. He says, if thy brother, and it could be brother or sister, shall trespass against thee. He says, here's the three-step pattern that you take. Number one, you go to that brother. It says brother, so we'll refer to brother. It could be sister as well. But he says, number one, you go to the brother and you tell him his fault between thee and him alone. And if he shall hear thee, then the purpose that was set out, as it mentions in the other verses, if he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But then he says the second part, he says, but if he will not hear thee, then take one or two more uh, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And he says, and if he shall neglect to hear them, then tell it to the church. And let him be as a heathen man and a publican. Now, the first point right here in this, and it's very, it's very laid out very specifically right here. It says, if I'm offended, if you're offended, if I've offended you, if you've offended me, then I'm to go to you, directly to you. If I go to somebody else or everybody else, then I've just skipped step one. And if we skip step one and we go to step two or we go to step three, you can never go back to step one. If you don't do step one the first time. Now, there's a whole lot involved in step one. Step one is not just a simple step that you just check the box. There's a whole lot in step one that you do. And the purpose and the goal is that you never get to step two. The whole solution right here is that you win the brother, that you gain the brother. Elder Compton told this story, great story it was to me, and I hope it will be to you. He said there was was a trustee of the old Landmark Church. He's dead and gone, this this particular, this was of the church up in Delaware. And he said um, he was upset at him. This individual was upset at Brother Compton. And he said, I went to his house and I knocked on his door. And of course, Brother Compton was probably in his 80s at the time. And he said, uh, he said, I knocked on the door and he says, the gentleman, uh, he, he came to the door and he says, he just lit into me. 
And he said, I just listened. And I listened. Brother Compton was in the clock business. He took care of the clocks in the White House and Capitol. He built clocks. He said, I realized right then and there that I had to let him, let this brother just run completely down. He said it was kind of like an eight-day clock. Anybody's ever familiar with the wind-up clocks? I've got my great-grandfather's first clock. It's one of my most treasured possessions. It's an eight-day clock. I think the reason it's eight days is because you wind it up the same day every week, and it never runs down. But an eight-day clock, if you let it run all the way down, it completely stops. And he said, I had to just let him unwind like an eight-day clock. And he said, you know when he finally unwound... He said, we could carry on a good conversation. He said, I had to just hear him out. And he said, a lot of times that's the main thing that people just need to be heard. I had an attorney tell me, he said, if you won't listen to people, people will pay big money to be heard and you're better off just listening. Had another attorney ask me, we're in the assisted living business, have been 20 years, started through caring for my grandparents, and we've taken care, by God's grace, of a lot of people. And I had this one attorney ask me one time, because it's a, a very uh, liable business, uh, people can make mistakes, people are not perfect, and you do the best you can, but things happen. When you have a whole bunch of employees, and a whole bunch of family members, and a whole bunch of residents... And this attorney asked me one time, he said, uh, how long have you been in the business? And I said, about 20 years. And he said, how many times have you been sued? And I said, well, by God's grace, so far, not once. And he said, well, you're long overdue. <laughs> I thought, well, that's not very encouraging. But he just meant the nature of the business, that that's what comes along with it. But I found out that the principles that Brother Compton taught about you just have to hear people out. And if people know that you care and if people know that you're willing to do the best you can and to make a change in a positive direction and that you're willing to let them hear you out or th hear them out, then you can carry on a good conversation. Right here he says, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, it's going to happen sometimes. It is. But the key is that... You go to that brother or to that sister and you go individually to that brother or that sister and then you tell them, I've been offended or you've offended me. Or sometimes it may be that you say, have I offended you? You may feel like that you've offended the brother. But if you go to that individual and you discuss with that individual what's on your heart, then it's amazing how that God can work on the other individual at the same time and win that other individual over. And then the purpose has been fulfilled that he says right here that you've won the brother. If you skip step one and you go to step two, you're not as likely to win the brother. If you skip step one and you go to step three, it's going to be a lot harder. It says that an offended brother, and I think it's in Psalm chapter 50 or 51, it says an offended brother is harder to be won than the bars of a castle. That doesn't mean that it's impossible, but it means it's almost impossible to win back an offended brother. 
And the whole purpose right here is to win the offended brother. Now, I think this is very, very important right here. I've offended folks. I may have offended you all. Maybe you've been gracious enough not to tell me. I know that there's um, the love covers a multitude of sins and you've been very long suffering with me. But I may have offended you and not even know about it. But if I have offended somebody and I know about it, I try to go right then. Because I want to tell you, one of the things that Satan uses to build his case is time frame. Things never generally get better. It generally gets worse. Um, I had a situation work related and I knew that I, I knew I was in the right. Now, I mean, I really was and I knew I was in the right. And so I ignored the concern of the individual. I knew I was in the right. And so I didn't really take heed to the concern of the individual. And in that individual's mind, they were right. And if you don't address something, it generally gets just bigger and bigger. And it did. This individual went to the state of Maryland. They went to the Maryland Board of Nursing. And they, if I had just heard them out and listened to them, that would have resolved it right then and there. But the accusation that was made, I knew I was right, and it was proven that I was right, but in their mind, they were right. I'm telling you from experience, if there's a situation that comes up, you're better off to address it early on. I learned a valuable lesson right there, that even if you're right, you don't ignore it. You address it right then and there. And right here he says, you address it with the individual and that's as far as it goes right there. He says, moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, brother, sister, then you go and tell him his fault. I want to, I want to throw, I know we're at, at, at closing time here, but I want to just throw out something else that's really, really important right here. The scriptures are very clear. And Jesus Christ teaches this lesson in Matthew chapter 6. That there are three things that are very important in worshiping the Lord. The giving of alms, the praying of prayers, and fasting. And if you have a situation with a brother or a sister that you feel like that either you've offended or they've offended you, then here is a really good place for you to latch on to fasting and prayer. And I'll tell you why. When you enter and worship God through prayer and fasting, it oftentimes, God through prayer and fasting, not only sometimes changes us, but He changes the other individual. Uh, I heard one minister saying, I believe this is true, he said, you may be right about your position and wrong about your approach. If you enter into prayer and fasting, fasting will clean up your approach. It will remove that personal mission that you have. It will change you in such a way 
that it will fulfill what Brother Ben has brought out, that Christ teaches us right here, that before you go to an offended brother, you will be sure that you go in the manner of humility. And oftentimes, God is not going to bless us if we're not humble. You may say, well, I've checked the first box because I went to the brother, but how did you go to the brother? Did you go in a proud, arrogant way or an accusatory way? Or did you go before the brother in a humble way with the purpose and goal in mind of winning the brother over? It's a very simple way that Christ teaches us here. He says the whole purpose, the whole goal is in sparing the brother or the sister. That's the entire goal. And as a result, we go to that individual And he says, and then you talk to that brother. Did you know that before you go, there's some things that I think you ought to do? I think number one, and it's myself included. Number one, before we go to the brother, we go in, in, in fasting. But number two, we go in prayer. Have we prayed about it? Have we, have we said, Lord, would you show me my sins? I remember minister told me one time, he says, remember anytime you're pointing your finger at other folks, you've got at least three pointing at yourself. Lord, would you show me my sins? Did you know that oftentimes by the time that he's done that and he shows us our own sins, the issues get really, really small. You know, the basis that we have of forgiving other folks, it is not based on their basis of deserving that you forgive them. The basis that we have of forgiving other folks is based on Christ forgiving us. There's not a single one of us here that deserves to be forgiven. That we've lived so righteous and so worthy and so godly that we deserve to be forgiven. We're not forgiven based on our being deserved to be forgiven. We're forgiven based on the mercy and grace of Almighty God. And that's the same basis that you forgive other folks as well. Now once you see that, that's going to bring about a very humble approach. And then when you go to the individual, the brother or sister, then I'll tell you this much. Brother Ben, I appreciate what you said here in this point. When you go and you take that approach, then you let the Lord work it out. You can't fix everything. You can't solve everything. I can't do it. The older I get, the more I realize, the less that I can help make an impact. You can't change other people, but God sure can. You pray about it. You tell them if you've been offended or you apologize if you've offended them. It's amazing. It's amazing the feeling that comes forth if an offended brother's been won. It is. It says that there's even rejoicing in heaven. Now, that doesn't tell us about all the rejoicing that goes on in heaven, but that's pretty amazing. That there's rejoicing in heaven over an offended brother that's been won. What a great opportunity it is for us. What a blessing it is for us to have the outline that Christ gives us here. You may say, well, in my situation it's different. It won't work. You may say, well, I've got a unique situation that won't work. Well, this is pretty clear right here. I think it's at least worthy of considering and praying about and taking that approach.